Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Paul Subri is a devoted businessman, philanthropist, volunteer, and advocate for education and university research. He was the chair of Manitoba's largest ever fundraising campaign, the Front and Center Campaign, which raised over $626 million for the University of Manitoba to help students, researchers, and our community. I sat down with Paul Subri, President and CEO of NFI Group and the winner of the Manitoba Philanthropy Awards 2020 Outstanding Volunteer Fundraiser to talk about volunteerism, mentorship, business, COVID-19, and giving back to the community any way you can. Welcome to Because and Effect, the podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined by Paul Subri. He is the president and CEO of NFI Group. NFI, of course, stands for New Flyer Industries, which is a Winnipeg-based company that manufactures transit buses and motor coaches. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Nolan. Appreciate it. We're having you on because you are the official 2020 Manitoba Philanthropy uh, Award winner for Outstanding Volunteer Fundraiser. So congratulations uh, on that. Uh, But before we get to awards and philanthropy and your sort of philosophy on that, maybe let's just talk about NFI right now. I would imagine it's a pretty crazy situation with, uh, you know, borders being closed. And I, I understand you do a lot of business in the state. So just maybe give me a quick summation of how things have been going with NFI for the last, I guess, for the whole year because of COVID and because of everything that's been going down. Well, you know, look, thanks for the opportunity to tell the story a little bit. It's a really cool business. Uh, New Flyer was originally founded in 1930 here in Winnipeg by a uh, Ukrainian immigrant and uh, grew up through ownership changes, market and strategies and so forth, and ultimately became North America's largest transit bus manufacturer. And we had the opportunity of a couple of acquisitions and rationalizing a few other transit bus players. In 2015, we acquired Motor Coach Industries, which ironically was also founded in Winnipeg, but in 1932. And it became the largest motor coach player in North America. So, uh, you know, a really wonderful Manitoba story uh, of two businesses coming together, two market leaders. Uh, and then we last year, we acquired another company in Europe, uh, headquartered in the UK, called Alexander Dennis, which is the world's largest double deck maker. So all seemed good and the plan was well thought out and our investments were well placed and then COVID changed everything. And so as you can imagine, everything from you know ridership dropping in the public transit environments to commercial operators parking their fleets and then us trying to figure out how to idle our facilities, start them back up and then you know putting people back to work safely. And so you know it's a little hard to build a bus from home. And so we did a lot of work around you know, safety, uh, cleanliness, uh, trying to separate people on the shop floor, trying to minimize the number of people that are inside a coach or a bus being built, uh, trying to get certain people that can work from home and all those dynamics, notwithstanding a whole massive supply chain that also was dealing with all those things. So uh, to say it's been a circus would be a, a bit of an understatement. I'm really proud of the way our team came across. We got about a little under 9,000 people in 51 facilities in 10 countries around the world. So it's been a, a real wonderful journey. And right now we're getting through COVID. As a communications person, I'm just thinking of the logistics required to, you know, make sure everyone's following the rules when our own situation is hard to communicate what the rules are, right? So how have you kind of focused on just keeping everyone on the same page and understanding, okay, hey, this is the way it has to be now. Here's what we can and can't do. And like, what, what's that process like? 
You know, it's it's interesting, and everybody tells us when we research, you know, pandemic or crisis, if you thought we were communicating before, you got to communicate 10 times, right? And, and what really hits you quickly in this kind of thing that none of us have ever learned or, or been through is that what you think you say needs to be said 10 times, but also needs to be said in multiple ways. And so, you know, things we've tried to do, we've tried to use some level, if you will, of social media internally with our people. We set up a website where our employees around the world could sign in and, and see, at the start at least, daily updates from different parts of the organization and now weekly and so forth. We uh, tried to fan out through our leadership groups using, um, you know, cascading emails or presentations. We've moved virtually to, to Microsoft Teams and other tools to, as you and I today are talking online and all those kind of things. Uh, I think the single biggest and most important thing we did is we put a task force together that had members from around the world, but also different functions across the company, across disciplinary team. And uh, as opposed to me chairing it and maybe driving the agenda, we used our EVP of Human Resources, a, a wonderful Winnipegger, Janice Harper, to be that person that champions the company-wide response to COVID. And, you know, so knock on wood, we've been, I think, very successful at mitigating it, but also where we have seen it, dealt with it, uh, and have a common message. But you're absolutely right. The ability to try and communicate, and everybody sees it and feels it differently. And so uh, it's ironic. We did a survey, I think, in July, a bit of a pulse check. We had about almost 6,000 of our employees respond, which is out of 9,000, which was fantastic. And we got an overwhelming you know, response that keep doing what you're doing. And we're just going out with another pulse check here next week. So it'll be interesting to, to see how people, uh, people feel working from home. Craziness. Yeah, we have, I think, just over 50 employees and it's, it's tough to stay connected and tough, tough to kind of keep everyone on the same page for sure. So 9,000 is a, a tall order. Are you optimistic right now? Like, how are you feeling about the future? How are you looking to 2021? What, what, what's the plan for you guys? Yeah, well, you know, what we decided to do in August was to launch a, a company-wide initiative called NFI uh, Forward. And really, it was a little bit of, instead of individual companies, we're pivoting a little bit to an integrated business. And so we had a number of initiatives to where we could harmonize business units or rationalize facilities or uh, a common approach to try and redress some of our overhead and SG&A costs and, and so forth. Um, you know, this year is, is almost a write-off in terms of what we're going to get done between now and the end of the year. We just, you know, we're deep into this, if you will, second wave. And, and of course, we just had our Thanksgiving, the Americans go into theirs. And, and of course, a couple of weeks after that, the, the spike goes up in COVID. And it's really quite amazing. Uh, in my household, my wife and my son had COVID. And so watching them have it to trace their steps and who they talk to and so forth. In the work environment, you, you have both people who come to work and are exposed, but also who are doing it in their own social lives. And so every time we get a positive test for somebody inside our business, there's 15 people that are off, uh, you know, plus or minus being tested. And so how the hell you run a production line with variations on A, I have COVID or B, I have to self-isolate or C, you know, I have nobody to take care of my children or my parents or whatever. It's It's been really tough. So long answer to a, a short question. You know, look, we've got a, a new administration. I assume uh, we'll get sorted out in the United States with a, a much more uh, focused response on, on COVID itself. But also, I think, a, for us, selfishly, a positive bent on, on public transportation and the whole dynamic around green or zero emission type vehicles. You know, we've heard uh, in the last two weeks positive news around vaccines and I know that's not a panacea and it doesn't happen overnight, but just getting people's confidence around, you know, a vaccine that has 90, 95% positivity rate 
uh, prevention rate sh should be really positive in addition to all the therapies and things that have been going on. So, uh, you know, 2020 is something I'm sure the entire planet looks forward to getting behind us. And while we're not out of the woods yet, it sure feels like as we move into the you know first and second quarter of next year, some semblance of the new normal, whatever that looks like, uh, maybe where we end up. For sure. Well said. Yeah. How long have you been with NFI, if you don't mind me asking? No, good question. Well, I, I, uh, January will be my 12th uh, anniversary. I, before that, I worked for uh, almost 25 years at Standard Arrow across the city here and, and was a wonderful part of the business that grew up and, and went global. And uh, this has been a, a really neat story to be part of the Manitoba company. Very cool. So how, like, I, I like what you mentioned about sort of the attitude towards green mobility and all that stuff. How have you found that that's changed over the last you know decade or so when the conversations sort of shifts to changing from a car centric model to maybe, you know, the different ways that will, will for sure benefit NFI, but just thinking a little more greenly when we're moving forward. You know, when I joined, uh, the guys had just, uh, the team had just gone through kind of a transition of the main chassis, the, 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 the frame, if you will, or the skeleton of the bus based on, you know, 30, 40 years of a, a previous generation and, and really did some neat work. But what they did is they designed the chassis to be propulsion agnostic, meaning uh, it could be tested or, or driven with a diesel engine, a natural gas, a hybrid. At that time, they were playing around with hydrogen fuel cells and the original versions of battery or trolley buses. And I think that's been our success is that we can play with any city, depending on where they are in that journey of, of zero emission. What's really, really impressive, you, you know, and I say this to a lot of people, but if you walked over to our new product development center here and you saw you know, a bunch of really solid, smart young people with uh, partnered up with some really senior guys that have worked on buses forever. We're doing it right from here from Manitoba. And we've done some very impressive stuff with zero emission in terms of battery electric, but also fuel cell electric so that you, you have a, a range dynamic and the trolley electric. And so what's really happening now in the political environment and the operating environment is the convergence of A, we got to figure out how to get these cities that are so congested to, to kind of ride public transit. The style, the look, the feel of the bus. You know, when I went to high school, we called it the loser cruiser, right? Nobody wanted to, to, to ride the bus. And if you get in a bus now, look, feel, style, smell, Wi-Fi, you know, voice enunciation, all those things are making it a very different experience. And then you add to that the, the truly responsible approach to the environment. And, um, and I think those things are all converging that for us, it's not a matter of if we're going to zero emission and there's multiple types, but it's not if it's when, and the pace is, the issue is pace and funding and the dynamic. And I think if we can continue to get the oversight from, you know, the city, the province, the feds, the same in the United States and Europe for that matter, we'll see a 20 year journey that ultimately before our lives are over, uh, you'll see public transit being truly a responsible way of moving people. Uh, around the world and, and it's cool to be part of that right in the middle of it very cool absolutely yeah can you speak a little bit to <clears throat> i i think a lot about as a businessman you can't just be focused on the bottom line anymore it has to be environment it has to be philanthropy it has to be sort of all these things connected to just you know making profits so how is your philosophy um when it comes to not just focusing on what you do but also focusing on the health of the sector the health of the community the health of the planet and and other things other than just you know the bottom line you kind of set me up nolan because if you can see in my background here there's a picture of a dashboard of a car and uh my father was in, in business in Manitoba, he ran Versatile for many years and then he was deeply involved in the university and he used to say to me all the time yeah, running a business is not like 
uh, just like driving a car where you're just looking at the gauges. The gauges tell you part of the story, but you got to look at the mirror to know where you've came from. And then you got to look out the windshield to know where you're going. And I think there's a lot of parallels between that and how you, you know, people try and run a business, but also how we try and balance our lives. You know, we you sure want a fancy car and I want a cottage and I want a nice house and I want to be able to have a, a you know, nice golf clubs, even though I'm lousy at it. But, you know, those things are important, but it's that balance of what, what makes you feel good about what you do and who you're with and, and who you work with and, and where you spend your social or your community time. That's, that's really, really important. Uh, funny, I, I bought this crazy thing at Winners one day waiting for my wife to uh, spend money that she didn't need to. But I saw this, uh, this picture in the scratch and dent and it reminded me of my father. So it was kind of a funny story. Beautiful. So talk about your philanthropic approaches right now. What are you focusing on? Where do you spend your energy? What is your cause? Like what, what are you focused on trying to move the needle on when it comes to philanthropic endeavors? You, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a neat story, but it's also a personal dynamic. You know, I, I, my dad was an immigrant to the country. He came and showed up in Canada 18 years old in, in 1948 with not a nickel in his jeans. And he worked his way up to be able to run a business and operate a business. But he always felt and told our family, I have six of us, five siblings, that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you got to give back more than you take from the community. And you got to give the community that gave you a chance something back for the next generation. And so, you know, he, he did well, but he wasn't a you know, wealthy guy. But his view was that he could give way more with his brains and his hands and, and his support than he could ever get economically. And I think I, I started the same kind of approach in life. Uh, I finished with a university degree and, and ended up in Edmonton working in a trucking business. And, you know, I didn't have any money. And so my view was, what could I do? And so I joined Big Brothers as a big brother. And boy, you know, I, I didn't live a privileged life, but I never wanted anything. I got out and played all the sports I wanted, I you know, whatever. But to learn about a young man in a family that was all busted up and a father that was inappropriate and, and uh, the kids needing something, but to get involved with what my little brother, Charlie, this concept of, you know, as much as, as people maybe say, I helped Charlie, Charlie helped me understand what the other side of the, of, of the world looks like. And it truly is a, a kind of a help and a learn dynamic. I, I felt it could help, but quite honestly, I bet you I learned way more than he learned from me and we're still friends to this day. So that's kind of where I got involved with, you know, marrying with the way my father talked about having to give back to the community with this hey, if I ever do get any money, I'm for sure I'll give it. But at this point in time, if I can use my hands and my brains and my energy to really try and make something better for somebody else, you know, really gratifying. So today, you know, I was deeply involved in the last couple of years with, uh, with this front and center campaign at the University of Manitoba. And, uh, it, you know, we originally set out to, to raise $500 million, a number of pillars of, of things we wanted to raise the university. But the more I thought about getting involved, first, it was daunting, scared the hell of me, $500 million, Manitoba. But this concept of two things, there's, uh, you know, I don't know, 150 or whatever thousand grads at the university, some that are still here like me and, and maybe you, I don't know. But, uh, and many have moved on and done well or gone somewhere else. So, so how do we... How do we use this campaign to, to connect people back to this special institution? Because there isn't much in this city or this province that goes on that isn't connected to University of Manitoba, whether it's the law profession or the sociology profession or the medical or whatever it is. And the second thing is that the university, you know, often gets lost in the media that it's that, yes, it's publicly funded, but it needs to have its own resources in addition to the public funding and tuition. And so the ability to be involved is something way bigger than, than one guy. Uh, that can actually have massive legacy where, where nobody's name is on the trophy, if you will, right? Like we did this as a community and, you know, I get to be lucky enough to be involved as the chair of the campaign, but 
to watch so many pull, pull together, you know, 60,000 people gave to this campaign, which is, which is really, really cool to be part of. So that's what it, what drove me to want to be involved in, in so deep in something like that is, is this concept of being part of big team sport. And I must admit it's selfish. I, I got a chance to work with some pretty special people in this city, you know, whether it's the Shipman family or the Richardsons or, you know, Sandy Riley or, uh, you know, Bob Silver t to learn from those people sit in meetings with them, make asks with them, listen to how they think about it, listen to how, like this is free consulting. You can't get that, you know, very many places. And so I, you know, I probably got way more out of it than I than actually put in. That's priceless for sure. Yeah, definitely. I, I've been thinking a lot about mentorship in my, you know, in line of work, both as a mentee and a mentor. Can you speak a little bit to who in your life has been a mentor? And obviously you've been a mentor to Charlie and, and I'm sure countless others, but just that relationship and, and, and that kind of one-to-one -one focus and really sort of believing in someone and, and in turn they end up believing in themselves. I'm really, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Well, you know, I, I, we often see mentor programs. Some of them are very formal and some of them are, are informal. And uh, you know, the ones that fail, the ones that I've been involved that have been successful is where there's expectations that somebody's going to, you know, carry the ball for me and run past the line and score the goal, right? And at the end of the day, it's about knowing what you want out of it and, and really understanding to either search out or to find a mentor that I want to learn about this or I want to be able to develop this skill or something. And then having the, the guts, if you will, to kind of step up and expose yourself, which is not easy to do as a young person, right? Say, go, you know, go ask Hartley Riley, Hartley Richardson to be your, your mentor. That's hard to do. At the same time, guys like Hartley Richardson, Mark Chipman, whatever in our community are so willing to help that, that, that they're, you know, it's incredible. This is part of what's so special about Winnipeg and Manitoba. And so, you know, I've been lucky to grow up in a household where I sat there at the dinner table and listened to a father that ran a, a good sized business do a couple of things, you know, talk about the complexities of the market or the need to sell your business, or even at times were tough, you know, seeing him with his hands in his, his face. So having to let people go and how much pain that was for him to actually do that when business wasn't going well. And I, I think that teaches you a lot. And I, I was very lucky. Uh, I had a really cool mentor over at uh, Standard Aero, a guy named Bob Hammerberg. Uh, Standard was part of the Federal Industries Group, as, as you may know. And uh, the hammer, as everybody called him, was a was a really financially smart guy. But you know, here's a guy from rural Manitoba that that really didn't have an ego. That just fundamentally cared about the business and the people, and you know, played his accordion at the Christmas party kind of thing, as simple as they get. But watching them, him, the way he treated people, the way he, you know, whether you were God or the the janitor, treated everybody the same way, fundamentally believed that you got to roll up your sleeves and do it wherever you are in the organization. I learned a lot about kind of that give a, give a darn factor, you know, if you, if you will. Um, and then I, you know, I learned from other people at, at that business. And then I've been really lucky to work here. The chairman of board is Brian Tobin. Brian was a, a federal minister and the, uh, the pr uh, premier of Newfoundland uh, and Labrador. And so to watch somebody manage meetings, uh, come to consensus, uh, you know, skip through the chaff to get to the real wheat and understand what the key issues are and that ability to kind of zero in you know, there's a lot of, uh, of learning that goes on in every everyday life. And I think the trick is in the mentoring relationship, whether it's formal, informal, is taking a minute to say, I just learned what that person did, you know, put it away and figure out at what some point in time, I'll go deploy that in, in what I do, whether it's at work or at home or with our friends or in, in philanthropy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had uh, Mark Chipman on the podcast a couple months ago and the exact same sentiment when it comes to 
community and just you know re giving back to what to what he considered gave him so much and stuff like that too well chips has turned out to be a really a good friend of mine and uh i am really impressed you know i got to know his father well you know here's a good example the apple doesn't fall far from the tree every when, when we moved here in 1976 my dad was recruited to, to run a business here he didn't know my dad from a hole in the ground he saw an article in the newspaper he phoned up my dad Hey, I'll sign you into this golf club. I'll take you to that club. I'll invite you to my family. Like, just welcome. Every job or promotion I ever got over my, you know, 30-year career, I got a handwritten note from Bob Chipman that said, hey, Junior, you know, happy for you. Good on you. Go do more, you know. And so, you know, Mark learned, like I did, from a pretty special father. Uh, but what Mark does in our community is, uh, in many cases, we see it, we read about it, but there's a lot of unsung hero stuff there. And Mark's the kind of guy that he doesn't need the credit. You know, he, he wants the, the machine to win. He doesn't need to be put on the score sheet, right? And that's that's really special. Yeah, very well said for sure. What would you say to someone who is, you know, in a position in their career where they can start perhaps becoming a mentor or a big brother or whatever the case may be, but they just don't know how to go about it or they're not sure of themselves or they're not sure how to be vulnerable or what advice would you give to someone in that position? Well, you know, I have two kids in their early 20s and, and uh, you know, they're just coming to that stage in their lives and I'm pushing them to, to make the call. First of all, you know, sit back and say, what do I want to do? Do I want to help over here? Or do I want to do that? Or do I want to coach kids hockey or whatever? Like, so you got to put yourself a little bit out there, but you got, you know, he's going to show up with an opportunity saying, please do this, right? You got to know what you want to do because you got to love it if you're going to do it well. And then you got to make the call. And whether that's, you know, calling somebody like me or calling Chip and saying, can I? there is so much in Manitoba that's really special about community, as you know, and I'm a huge fan of uh, Connie and the team over the United Way and all the work that they, they do um, and the number of organizations they reach. And I've pushed a lot of young people that I've talked to to say, go buy Connie a coffee and find out where they have needs and wants because they're every agency themselves and these are dying for, for young people that want to do more to come out and get out there. And that's, uh, you know, that's the kind of advice I'd give is, is you got to put yourself out there because nobody's going to show up and say, hey, Nolan, I need you to color this coloring book for me, right? And if they do, then it's a one-shot deal. It's not really fundamentally doing something for the community. Make the call. I love it. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, so have you been given much thought about your acceptance speech for the awards on the 27th or what's, what's your plan for that? You know, uh, as you and I talked just before we got online here, um, there were so many people involved in this massive initiative and, you know, there's, there's some unsung heroes, you know, first there's the community leaders, the, the, the president of the university, David Barnard started up what he called the president's campaign team. And, you know, I was, I was thrilled to be honored and asked to, to kind of chair that. And so, you know, trying to call Jerry Price and ask him for his help on a team is, is a little intimidating. And yet there's a great example, made the call there to help in a, in a flash, uh, no questions asked. Uh, so, you know, that campaign team and the advisory of the leaders of the Winnipeg is, or Manitoba is really special. The people inside the machine are often the unsung heroes. Again, whether it's the United Way or the ex, uh, external relations office at the university or whatever the cause is, the Winnipeg Art Gallery, but the people inside the machine uh, don't get the credit ever that they deserve. And yet they are busting their butts night, day, weekend. They sweat the details. They want to make it right. Uh, because they know the things that people are investing in are, are uh, life-changing for others for a long term. And that's really cool. And, uh, and then we had, you know, we had such a great experience. I did meeting a lot of donors, whether somebody gave us 10 bucks or uh, meeting Ernest Rady, who committed $30 million to the campaign. 
uh, and listening to the, what's important to him and listening to how he wanted to recognize his parents that, and, and this, the, the community that gave him a chance. And uh, that kind of stuff is, is contagious as hell. It just makes you, you want to do more. So, you know, as, as I joked with you, it, it's like we won the Stanley Cup here. And, and I fortunately get to be able to raise the cup first as, as the chair. But, boy, this is a team sport, you know, and fundraising and philanthropy and, and, and that kind of stuff is really, truly a team sport. And it's I, I can honestly say I've been working for whatever, 37 years now. I have never been involved in something as gratifying as the day we said, uh, you know, we were over the line. Well, it's huge. That's such a, a crazy concept to even set that as the goal, right? But I mean, that's amazing that you get it. Congratulations. And it's so true about the contagiousness. I, I mean, starting this podcast last year, you know, I didn't really know what it was going to be. But when you talk to people about the things they really, really are passionate about, you can't help but like want to just go out and solve the world's problems, you know, and that's been the best part of just talking to people and saying like, hey, what are you into? Like, what, where does that come from? What's the passion like? So thank you for sharing. It's, it's been wonderful. Uh, at the end of our time, we, we ask the same seven questions to all of our guests. We call it the just because segment. Are you okay to go through those kind of rapid fire? Okay, uh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Shoot. First question is, what is the very first cause that you ever remember caring about? Well, you know, I gave the example of Big Brothers and uh, I became a Big Brother. And then when I moved back to Winnipeg and got a kind of a legitimate job, I actually joined the board of Big Brothers uh, because, I, you know, again, I learned a lot about what I do and don't know and, uh, and other people's views on life. And so I, I really thought that was cool. Very cool. Question two, uh, what if money and politics and logistics were no issue for you at all, you could just snap your fingers and something would happen. What's the first thing you would do in support of your current cause? Well, let's, let's use the current cause of, of the university. And I would say, um, you know, this concept of, of uh, not only asking and raising money, but getting people re-engaged and appreciating where they came from. You know, the, the research that was done about how many people that have done incredible around the world that actually are U of M grads blew my mind. And, uh, you know, some of them I spoke to personally, but this concept of a, getting people to realize and show appreciation, but also in many cases, they're not aware that we're out there reaching and whatever, the minute they find out. And so, uh, you know, I think everybody that's leading some kinds of those big philanthropy efforts is connecting with awareness and then trying to engage in appreciation. And, and so I, I think that's why what really put us all over the future. And quite honestly, the U of M's and a bit of an easy sell, we're educating our future, right? And it's pretty broad, pretty neat. Yeah, I remember I went to a dinner a couple months ago, uh, maybe time has lost all meaning for me, but a couple, some amount of time ago, I went to a dinner and they were honoring one of the doctors or something from the U of M. And it was like, when, once you heard what Manitoba was responsible for from, from that program, it was like absolutely shocking. So yeah, yeah. it's pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, question three, what's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about your cause? Well, I would say, again, back to the university is there's a, a stigma around this is the government's problem or the government's issue. Quite honestly, you know, research doesn't doesn't just happen. And whether it's undergrad research or, you know, masters or doctorate type stuff, it needs vision, which I think the university has. It needs funding, no question, but it, it needs the right people. And so, you know, that whole getting the broader community to understand you need all three to be successful. And research is a massive part of what this school does. The, you know, for example, one of the things I didn't know that the, the medical faculty, the amount of work they do associated with causes in Africa are mind-boggling. That's championed, you know, from little old Winterpeg, Manitoba here is, is pretty cool. 
Yeah, that was, I think, I, I'm not sure if it was an AIDS epidemic or something to do with that. I was just like, how? Like, Manitoba's killing it on the world stage. It's pretty cool. Uh, question four, what's a time in your life where you had to pit? Well, maybe non-COVID related, what's a time in your life where you had to pivot because plan A wasn't working out and you had to pivot to plan B? Well, you know, there's lots of everybody's examples, but I'll tell you, let, let's just use COVID as an example. COVID is not one thing, right? Many times in our life, you have a market issue or a product issue or a people issue. Like everything has had to pivot on COVID. It's, it's just incredible. And, you know, we joke around that it's like whack-a-mole, the Red River X here. You know, we, we got one of those whack-a-moles and another one pops up and, and everybody is different. And it changes everything in our business, how we run it, our suppliers, our customers, our, the regulators, a shut border, all those other things. Yeah, we talked about communication. I think anybody who is um, in their careers right now and learning from COVID as much of a pain in the butt it has been, we're going to be way smarter, way better, way more adaptive as a, as a human race than we've ever been. And heaven forbid we see something else of, of this nature next time around. Uh, it won't take us a year and a half to figure out, you know, how to get through it. So, yeah, that adaptability, I think, is key. People who can work under a new set of circumstances every single day uh, are going to thrive in this world where there is a new set of circumstances every single day. Yeah. Uh, question five. What is the best advice you've ever been given? I like to make the call, but maybe, is there another piece of advice? You know, I, I love the quote and uh, I attribute it to this one to, to, I played basketball at the U of M, not very much. I sat mostly on the bench, but our, our coach was a guy named Martin Riley, who you may or may not remember. Martin was a captain of the Olympic team and, and a, a U of M star. And then he came back and coached us for a couple of years. And uh, the quote is actually attributable to John Wooden, who was a great basketball coach at UCLA. But he said, and I use it a lot, it's amazing what can be accomplished when nobody cares who gets the credit. And, you know, it applies to, to our situation with our U of M capital came or applies to your, your discussion with Mark Chipman and so forth. If we can get people to do it because they want to and because we can band together and who cares whose name is on the jersey, I think that's probably the most important advice we can get, you know, because at the end of the day, uh, it, it's a life really is a team sport. Uh, reminds me of play for the crest on the front, not the name on the back. Yeah, Very true. Some other things. Uh, question six, what advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you could talk to him right now? Well, you know, there's a couple things. And I, you know, I love quotes, but, you know, reputation is priceless. And, and I, you know, I did a lot of dumb things in my life, but it, none of them were on somebody's phone. And today's world, everything you do is on somebody's phone. And so, you know, you can't not be yourself, but you got to be very smart about choices you make because they last, you know, forever. Um, which then leads to another thing that I, I think is quite important. And as we interview young people, or again, as I try to guide my kids or my nieces and nephews, I think people need to be who they are, not what they expect, you know, people to think they are. In today's invert world with, with so much opening up, whether it be, you know, your sexual preference and religions and races and all these other dynamics, just being yourself is so powerful and loving yourself is really cool. And, you know, the other thing, again, I, you know, I attribute this to my father, but he used to say, and I never really understood it. He used to say, the only things that are important in our life are your health and your family. Everything else kind of doesn't matter. You know, in your deathbed, nobody cares how much money you have or what, uh, what kind of car you drive or, but your health and your happiness and your family is all what's matter. And, and you watch families have their challenges or you watch go through financial dynamics Look, health is everything. So, you know, that's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Very well said. Absolutely. Uh, last question. Thank you very much for doing this, Paul. This has been 
inspiring, illuminating, and very, very excellent conversation. Uh, but last question is, what do you want to be remembered for? Well, look, I'm neither rich nor famous, uh, but I would hope that uh, you know friends of mine or people I worked with or people I've been involved with would say, you know, Paul's the kind of guy that that gave uh, more than he took. You know, whatever it is, whether it's work or whether it's family stuff or whether it's friends or social or community or university or whatever, because I, I think that kind of a thing is if you're more of a giver than a taker, uh, net net, it's a win, and uh, and I think that applies to all parts of our lives. So that's what I would like to turn to. Beautifully said. I always bring up the quote or the the concept of leave every room you enter in better off than when you came into it, right? And it's a very similar conversation. Well, you know, one of the, one of the quotes, uh, uh, Nolan, that I just always love is, and and the size of the dent doesn't matter. But you'll remember, you know, one of the most famous quotes from Steve Jobs, where he said, you know, make a dent in the earth. Now, there's a guy that fundamentally dented the earth, no question. But if everybody can think about some level of dent, whatever they dented, right? That's a that's the same kind of concept of just making the place better, because better is always better. Yeah, leave a mark, leave your mark. Well, Paul, you've left a mark on me. Thank you for this conversation. I know you're <laughs> probably one of the busiest people in Winnipeg or Manitoba right now. So thank you for taking the time. Uh, good luck with your acceptance speech on the awards on the 27th, I believe, and we'll be watching and cheering you on uh, from here. So thank you so much. Thanks, Nolan. Great talk yeah. to you. Enjoy your day. Be safe. Thank you again to Paul Subri. Um, congratulations again on winning your award, the outstanding volunteer fundraiser for the Manitoba Philanthropy Awards. Very well deserved. And obviously that conversation uh, showed what kind of a man Paul was. Very inspiring. Uh, really, really cool to get to sit down and talk to him for, you know, about half an hour. So uh, thanks again to Paul. And thank you for listening. If you know any friends or family or anyone that would enjoy hearing uh, Paul's story or any of our previous podcasts, please send them a link. It's really uh, helpful when you share on Facebook, or on Twitter, on anywhere you uh, <laughs> spend your time. Uh, send it to a friend, send it in a text, whatever it does. It really helps us out. So thank you so much. All, all music on the podcast is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can find his music at trentonburton.com. And the Cause and Effect podcast is from the Winnipeg Foundation. So if you want to learn more about the foundation and everything that we're up to, go to wpgfdn.org. Or you can follow them on social media at wpgfdn. My name is Nolan Bicknell. You can follow me at Nolan Bicknell. And remember, one of the greatest gifts you can give is your time. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs>